0: Hi, everyone. A quick disclosure before our episode today. Our guest, Dr. Marcella Farada, is sharing her own personal story. The views expressed are her own and do not represent the medical research institution where she is employed. Thank you, and enjoy the podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Welcome to today's podcast. The topic today is relapsing polychondritis. We're joined by Dr. Marcy Ferrada, who authored a review of the entity that was recently published in the Annals. What is unique about this podcast, however, is that Dr. Ferrada is not only a physician, but a physician who actually has the illness of relapsing polychondritis. Her manuscript is entitled, Relapsing Polychondritis is a Lung Disease, My Story. And in the article, she writes very powerfully about her experiences with her illness and with being a patient with a chronic disease. Dr. Farada is currently a rheumatology fellow. She is also a trained intensivist and infectious, and infectious disease physician. Welcome, Marcy, and thank you very much for participating in this podcast.
1: You're welcome, and I'm very excited Um to be here to talk about relapsing polychondritis.
0: Terrific. So, to start off, can you therefore review the salient clinical features of relapsing polychondritis? And I'd obviously like you to touch on the diagnostic approach and obviously some of the treatment options that are available for our patients.
1: Well, more than salient clinical features, I think that um, I would call it um, misattributed because uh, patients with relapsing polychondritis will have a lot of symptoms that are usually um, attributed to other conditions. For example, they could have shortness of breath and dry cough and wheezing, and many of the patients will get diagnosed as asthma. Um, or patients will say, oh, my knees are swollen because I am exercising too much. And uh, um, one of the um, problems and issues with this disease is that there is actually not a blood test that can make a diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis, um, and that is why it's so important to uh, learn about this condition, because if you don't think about it, you will never make the diagnosis. And uh, But uh, talking about important clinical features, so it's uh, airway involvement, and patients can have, um, uh, as a result, damage to the trachea and the bronchi, uh, the majority of the physicians that remember this condition will think about relapsing polychondritis as a swollen ear, but diseases that affect multiple organs, including uh, the vasculature, the eyes, the brain, the joints, and obviously the airway. Um, So to diagnose relapsing polychondritis, uh, there are uh, 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 diagnosis criteria that is from the 1970s. And um, uh, you need to have uh, three out of six um, uh, of the following uh, organ involvement. So you need to have... uh, arthralgias or arthritis uh, that are not erosive, eye inflammation, meaning scleritis or episcleritis, inflammation of the ears, but they call it chondritis. The interesting thing is that there is no definition of what is chondritis. Is it redness? Is it pain? Is it damage? Patients, uh, as a part of the diagnosis criteria, is also um, chondritis of the airway and uh, inner ear inflammation. And then, if you have three out of six, then you have the diagnosis of relapsing polychondritis. And there is a modified criteria called the uh, Damiani's criteria, also from the 70s, and that includes the first diagnosis criteria called McAdams, uh, plus responsive to treatment response to Dapson and corticosteroids or biopsy proven. Now, the biopsy to to use a biopsy to make a diagnosis for relapsing polychondritis, I think that in some instances could be a little bit problematic uh, because the biopsy could be negative and the patients can still have the disease. Uh, or uh, the biopsy could be very unspecific. And not only that, but in a patient that is having already inflammation in a cartilaginous structure, creating trauma to that area can, in some instances, make them flare from the disease. In terms of treatment, um, there is no FDA drug that has been approved to treat relapsing polychondritis. There is no treatment algorithms. And uh, patients acutely uh, should receive corticosteroids to treat the inflammation uh, very fast. And there is multiple options of treatment, uh, including biologics, including including uh, DMARs uh, and uh, medications that are not immunosuppressants, depending on the disease severity. And organ involvement.
0: So, how much do we know about the pathogenesis, Marcy?
1: Very little. Very little. Everything is based on case reports. So, if you, when I, when I first was diagnosed, uh, the first thing that I did was to go and read. I basically, when I was not able to come to work and I was at home sick, the only thing that I did was read about relapsing polychondritis for six months. The only thing that I did the whole day. It was the only thing. So I read. So when I was first diagnosed and I was told that this was rare and there was no um, articles, and I found, oh, but there is like 1,500. Their majority are case reports. So it's very difficult to make a conclusion on uh, one single patient. Now, there are uh, a few uh, cases uh, where they have evaluated different antibodies and they have been positive in like 22 or 20 patients. And uh, that's why people believe that this disease is autoimmune. Uh, but to be honest with you, I don't think that we have a clear understanding of what is the mechanism. Is it um, the inflammation coming directly from the cartilage, or is are the T cells that are getting crazy because they're dysregulated dis- and then go and attack uh, the, the cartilage? And so we, we don't have uh, a clear understanding. And the patients are very different. I honestly believe that this is more than one disease because you see patients that have isolated subglutic stenosis, and then you see patients that have a visual inflammation of the ears and the nose and inflammatory markers that are elevated. And then you see patients that they complain of, of significant ear pain and nose pain, but you can't see it and they don't have inflammatory markers. Those are the patients that are the hardest to diagnose.
0: So it sounds like it's a syndrome with with a variety of different phenotypes. Is that is that, do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, that's why the diagnosis is based on a pattern recognition, mm-hmm. right? Do you have, if, depending on, on where do they have the inflammation, but I think that this disease has different subgroups. And, and for pulmonologists, for example, there is a subgroup of patients that have a particularly airway involvement. So they will just have, a significant inflammation on in the airway and very minimal involvement of other organs.
0: So, you know, Marcy, you wrote so eloquently about how your illness evolved and how you ultimately came to a diagnosis. So can you retell your story for us?
1: Sure. So I, yeah, I, I, I talk about it there a little bit, but I, I yeah, I, I was sick for, for many years. And then, and again, I was like, as a physician, you, you will never want to think that you have a problem but you know that you have a problem because you know your body very well, but it's very easy to rationalize, right? So I was like, oh, I'm having knee swelling is because I run a half marathon. But if you think about it, somebody that weighs like 40 kilos or 45 kilos, that is in shape, why would I be having knee swelling? It doesn't make any sense. And then I had syncopal episodes and I had uh, joint pains, but they were, at the time, they were not swollen. And then I, I remember people telling me uh, if I was drinking alcohol at work because my nose looked red, but it wasn't painful at that time. Uh, so I had these symptoms intermittently, and, and there, were, there were periods of time that I felt very sick, that uh, very fatigued, and, and just unwell. And when I had the syncopal episodes particularly, uh, I went to see physicians, and uh, all my blood tests was normal. So I was thinking, maybe I'm just imagining all of this because I cannot really see it and then, um, and I had episodes of uh, dysphonia and I, I saw an ENT and everything looked fine. So I was like, okay, maybe I'm just I'm talking too much. And then uh, after I had, yeah, I mean, it's like you were like, and then, well, I, I ran a half marathon being sick because I was like, okay, I'm just going to push through it. And then um, drinking Tylenol and Aproxen and energy drinks. So I knew all the energy drinks uh, and I was able to function uh, with very high, like, people always think that, I, that, that I'm hyper. I used to be hyper. I, I'm not as hyper anymore. Uh, but I was able to function, being very sick. And nobody, nobody will, could tell that I was having pain, because I will never complain of it. Uh, and, um, and then after I had my baby, I, um, I lost the weight very quickly. And I was like, oh, this is great. I lost all the baby weight. But I think that that was a sign of the disease that I didn't know because I also had night sweats. But I was like, oh, it's because it's the summer, so I'm just hot. And then and then I started coughing. And then the cough, I thought, well, maybe I'm just having like an upper respiratory infection. But then the the cough became like very um, debilitating up to a point that I could not sleep at night because of the cough. And it was a dry cough. and uh, And then I couldn't breathe. So I felt that... It's just a very weird feeling. It's like you're feeling that, um, that you cannot excel completely. And then I will go and get an x-ray and everything look normal. Just hyperinflated, but normal. Until I coughed so much that I broke a rib. So I was like, okay, this is a problem. You know, I just can't live like this. So I went to see a pulmonologist and then they did pulmonary function test and they said, okay, and I was wheezing at that time. So they said, okay, uh, I think you have asthma. And they gave me 60 milligrams of prednisone for three days and, or for five days. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm human on the 60 milligrams of prednisone. This is great. Uh, the cough went away. I can breathe. I feel great. And then um, once the, the effect of the steroids uh, wore off, then I started having symptoms again. So I basically started taking steroids um, to treat my symptoms, Uh, and then uh, until I just got up to a point that I just needed too much steroids to treat my symptoms, and uh, and that was right before I was attending in the ICU. Um, Like right, I think that I started doing the steroids the day that I graduated, and I remember this. uh, very much that day, the day that I graduated from my infectious disease fellowship, I could not breathe. I was like, okay, this is a, I just can't. And it's a horrible feeling. I mean, when patients tell you that they, they feel short of breath, just take it seriously. It's, it's just horrible uh, because you, you feel like drowning, literally. So I decided that going to the emergency room was not going to be helpful. And, and I just, and then they told me I had asthma and I had responded to it. So I just started taking steroids. And then uh, when I tried to come down on the steroids, then I started having more symptoms. So I had costochondritis, which is extremely painful, and then swelling on my knees. So then I said, okay, I just have to take more steroids. And then that was like probably a week or so before it was a time for me to be attending in the ICU. And I was like, well, I just graduated and I really want to be attending and I don't have a diagnosis. So I'm just going to just take steroids. Um, I am not saying that that was the right thing to do. Uh, but that's what I did at that time. Uh, maybe my judgment was being blurred from the steroids. Uh, but uh, but then I did my time as an as an in the ICU, and then everything was great. It was amazing. I loved it. And after that, I said, okay, I need to really look for somebody to help me because this is not sustainable. Uh, and that is when I went to see an amazing rheumatologist. His his name is James Katz, and and he diagnosed me. Uh, and, and then after that, it has been a rocky, rocky road.
0: So we'll come back to how your illness has evolved and how it's impacted your life and your career. But a couple of things. After I read your story, the first thing I thought was, have I missed a diagnosis in my own career? Um, so which of your symptoms was the most critical warning signal of of the relapsing polychondritis, especially um, given the prominent respiratory. Uh, involvement that you had,
1: yeah. So I think that uh, I think that it was uh, first the fact that uh, on my PFTs I had actually a paradoxical response to the bronchodilators. So I, I think that uh, if you have a patient that you think that they have asthma but they're not responding properly to the dilators, even though they're wheezing, you should consider another diagnosis. Uh, and um, and I just think that uh, the history of having voice changes, we actually did a uh, study that, that we published in December where we found that voice changes, dysphonia, phonia, anterior neck pain, were symptoms uh, early, uh, early on in patients that were going to develop respiratory symptoms. So I think that a cough and shortness of breath and a, a person that doesn't feed the typical diagnosis of asthma, you should think about an alternative diagnosis, including relapsing polychondritis.
0: Fair enough. And how about you describe uh, very, very um, well the sensation that someone was cutting your throat with a knife—sort of the the neck pain. How about that? That that certainly is an unusual symptom, and, and certainly would be hard to tie in with a diagnosis of asthma. How about that?
1: So that is a very so anterior neck pain. is is very common in patients with relapsing polychondritis. That is because you have a gigantic piece of cartilage in the anterior part of your neck, the thyroid cartilage. The problem with that cartilage is how do you assess that the cartilage is inflamed? You can't, because if you do direct laryngoscopy, you're not going to see it. So um, patients that complain of anterior neck pain and the other symptom that they have is a choking sensation. So because I think that the the epiglottis also get swollen, so difficulty swallowing or feeling that they have something stuck on their throat or a choking sensation, that would be also a, a symptom to keep in mind for relapsing polychondritis. And uh, the the cutting throat pain, I believe that that was probably epiglottitis that happened later on uh, after I had the diagnosis.
0: So you described your treatment with prednisone and you said it was terrible. So what is it really like to take high-dose steroids? And what are the most impactful side effects? I mean, we obviously, as internists and as specialists, we use corticosteroids so often, and, and we certainly educate our patients about the classic side effects. In your case, what was the most bothersome thing to you, Marcy?
1: Well, it's, it's, to be honest with you, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing drug when you're inflamed. So when you're so sick and you're inflamed and you take it, you feel great because the inflammation is being taken care of. But when you take it for a prolonged period of time, is uh, the, like the central obesity. I mean, these things are not only cosmetic they are very uncomfortable. So the central obesity is extremely com- uncomfortable and it makes you bloated. And the hump is extremely, extremely uncomfortable. It, and then and then I'm, I'm saying on, on the manuscript, there is special pillows that you could give your patients or advise your patients to use that have a hole in the middle and that can help you s- sleep better. And I think the other problem taking very high dose of steroids was the difficulty concentrating. Mm-hmm. You can't think right when you're taking higher doses. It's very difficult to think and, uh, and then to control your emotions. It's just very hard. Um, so uh, I think that if, if I will advise to a patient that is taking higher doses of steroids to try to concentrate on something. Like uh, think about something like a goal or, or something to do. So then you can uh, try to minimize all those other feelings and, and thoughts and try to think about uh, something different than having to be taking these steroids. And the um, you want to eat everything, so I think another advice would be just to eat carrots because they make you uh, feel full very, very fast, and they're crunchy, so you can chew on them, and it's more like the sensation of chewing that you need to go through when you're having steroids, that you just want to chew on something.
0: Now, I, that I've never heard, and uh, I think I will incorporate that moving forward. That's very interesting. Uh, Marcia, as physicians, we tend to self-treat. And so what have you learned about the potential consequences of doing that?
1: It is, you know, I think that many physicians have done it because it's the easiest thing to do, right? You think that you know, right? You're like, oh, I went to medical school. I'm a doctor. I didn't turn medicine. I know it all. And I am just going to treat myself. I don't think that that is a good idea because, first of all, you cannot examine yourself properly. And believe me, I tried. You can't. You cannot listen to your lungs properly. It's not humanly possible. So uh, starting with that, you're going to miss things because you cannot do a proper physical exam. I mean, how do you do a neurological exam on yourself? You can't. So then uh, the other problem is that I think that you're going to miss things not only because you cannot examine yourself, but because you're going to be biased based on your symptoms and you're going to um, put yourself at risk uh, if you don't have somebody uh, to examine you and treat you. Now, of course, we always want uh, the patient, and as, as and as physicians, you want to be part of the decision-making. and You don't want somebody to tell you what to do. You want to be part of the discussion and make a decision together, but you need somebody that is going to give you the options of treatment. Uh, and most of the times, probably, or maybe the disease that you have is not something... Uh, that that you know about because you probably didn't train on, right? I was having respiratory symptoms, and I wasn't a pulmonologist, right? I am going to be a rheumatologist, but I wasn't a rheumatologist. So I think it's important to have somebody uh, to treat you and don't treat yourself.
0: Agree wholeheartedly. Marcia, what's the most important lesson that having a chronic illness has taught you?
1: Many, many lessons. It has made me a better person. I think that when you're sick uh, and you have to go through all of these situations, uh, you're more, uh, or at least I am. I am more tolerant. I think that I was a little bit intolerant of many things, and and I was judgmental, and and I learned how to not to do that because you never know what people are going through, right? Absolutely. And I also, um, I think I'm a better physician uh, because I'm more uh, compassionate and I have an understanding of what does it mean, you know, when you, when, when, when you have a disease and, and you, so I learn a lot of things, but having a chronic disease is, uh, it, it makes you see life differently and to me. I think that I, I have changed my priorities. I think that I was very work driven and now I have other priorities. and and there are other things that, things that are used to bother me a lot, they don't bother me anymore because they're not important anymore.
0: It certainly teaches you to prioritize, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I just want to follow up on something you said about, and that is how your personal experience as a patient has affected how you doctor and your role as a physician. So you, you commented that you're less judgmental. Any other any other impact on how you approach your patients now as a rheumatologist?
1: Well, yeah, I'm more compassionate and I am more careful in how I communicate with the patients because I know what is it means when you hear things from a physician. So I think that sometimes uh, we can be a little bit blunt when we communicate to the patients, like a diagnosis or a blood test or something. And and I think that uh, in some circumstances, uh, you should try to be a little bit more uh, careful in the way that you say things.
0: So yours is, is a story of physician as patient. And obviously, at some point in our lives and careers, we will be patients uh, as well. So what message would you like to deliver to our colleagues about how they interact with, with, their, with their patients? You mentioned about being more compassionate, maybe softening the message while at the same time continuing to be forthcoming about the diagnosis. Anything else?
1: I think that it's very important for physicians to listen to the patients uh, because I, um, I think that sometimes the physicians are listening but not really listening. And I think that taking the uh, complaints of the patients seriously, uh, because I, the majority of patients that are going to go and see a physician is because they're really having a problem. It's not because they are imagining things. I, I, I felt uh, in some instances, in my interactions with other physicians, that, that they were making me feel that I was imagining things, right? So I think that uh, listening to your patient about their complaints that they have, because they are real. And the other um, thing that I've learned is that try not to be biased. That is very difficult because we are humans, but um, we have learned that many patients with relapsing polychondritis have been diagnosed with other conditions that can make physicians be biased towards trying to uh, make the patients feel that they're imagining things like anxiety, depression, fibromyalgia, and then the patient is anxious because they can't breathe. Right, so I think that that is important to try to listen to the patient.
0: A very, very important message. I, again, I couldn't agree with you more, Marcy. What's been the impact of your illness on your family?
1: It, well, it's it's very hard. I mean, we adjusted to it, uh, but my, I think that it's harder for the people that love you to see you sick than for the person that is sick to go through the disease, because they cannot do anything to help you. They can just be there for you but there is nothing they can do to help you. Uh, so I think that it's, it's been difficult but we adjust and I am very grateful to have an amazing husband and I have an amazing uh, friends and, and family and they've been there and been extremely supportive. Uh, but it's difficult.
0: How old is your daughter now? She's four. Terrific, and doing well.
1: Yes, she's a little crazy but that's okay. <laughs>
0: How about you? How are you doing now? What's what's the state of, of the illness and and in uh, your treatment at this point?
1: Well, I have um I'm actually going to switch treatments uh, half of my regimen uh, this uh, weekend or week because I I have been flaring uh, I like a lot so I think that uh this um have been able to control the symptoms uh, but we haven't uh, been able to find the. Uh, the magic bullet uh, to control all the symptoms. Uh, But I'm okay as long as I can control the inflammation.
0: Well, I certainly wish you the best. Um, Are you currently caring for patients with relapsing polychondritis as a rheumatology fellow?
1: Yes. Yes, I've seen many patients with relapsing polychondritis.
0: And what are your career plans after fellowship, Marcy?
1: My plan after fellowship is to study relapsing polychondritis uh, until we fix it which is going to take a long time because we have nothing, right? We don't have classification criteria, treatment algorithms. We don't know the mechanisms. So it's a lot of work ahead. But that is what I want to do.
0: Are there any ongoing uh, research projects on relapsing polychondritis?
1: Yes, they are. And um, they're in the United States. And there is also an international um, a group that I have created to study the disease. And then we're working on a classification criteria and it's a multidisciplinary uh, international group of people that are interested in, in helping me making this disease better. But uh, there are uh, clinical studies as well in the in United States.
0: Are there any ongoing treatment trials, any, any um, clinical trials of new or novel therapeutic agents?
1: No, unfortunately not, no, not yet.
0: So the standard or the, the standard approach is, is systemic corticosteroids um, and what are, what are the second- or third-line drugs that clinicians reach for, um, either because of limiting side effects of the steroids or um, for incomplete responses?
1: So patients uh, with relapsing polychondritis, as I was saying before, the disease activity can be very variable, as well as the organ involvement. So for patients that have airway uh, involvement, they should have uh, higher doses of steroids to treat the disease. And when a patient doesn't respond to, for example, 60 milligrams, it may be that they need a little bit more uh, of the steroids to be able to control the inflammation. In terms of our treatments is very variable and is physician dependent. Uh, what it has been recommended in the past and kind of like the classical treatment will be to give cyclophosphamide for somebody that has uh, airway inflammation or is not responding to very high doses of steroids. But right now, there are multiple other options other than cyclophosphamide. Plus, in some instances, cyclophosphamide uh, could not work for the disease. Um, So TNF inhibitors, uh, they work uh, approximately 50% of the time. And this is based on uh, the literature. There is about 43 case reports available. Uh, and uh, tocilizumab, which is an anti-IL-6 inhibitor, um, has worked in about 14, 14 cases uh, in the literature. And, but these are case reports, so we don't know what happened afterwards. Methotrexate also works for mild disease. Um, and, uh, and other agents uh, can include um, azathioprine, uh, but we don't have a clear understanding if it works. And microphenolate, which we don't know if it works either. Um, but what is available in the t- literature in terms of biologics, I will think a TNF inhibitor and uh, tocilizumab uh, would be agents that, that can be considered to treat this disease. Ritoximab, uh, based on what is available in the literature and the patients that I have seen, has not worked for relapsing polychondritis. So this is a French study that included nine patients who received rituximab, and, and they didn't really had a response to it. Uh, and that is basically uh, what what we're uh, what is available to give to the patients.
0: So we, uh, as with many of the diseases that rheumatologists treat, and certainly pulmonologists treat, um, we need we really need some some um, evidence based prospective trials. It's a rare disease, as you mentioned. The incidence is is what?
1: So I don't think that I don't think that this is as rare as people think it is. I think that this disease is just not being diagnosed. And there is no current data on, on the incidence in relapsing polychondritis in the United States. The data that is available is from 1986, and this was done at Mayo by uh, Clement Mitchet, and that included 112 patients, and they calculated that the incidence was 3.5 cases per million. But again, this is from 1986. So I think that, uh, and I can tell you that there are more patients, really, really more patients that, that, than what we think they are.
0: So given your focus on relapsing polychondritis as you've gone through your training, how many people do you take care of?
1: I have seen 63 patients with relapsing polychondritis.
0: Wow. So you're very well positioned. That's, that's a, again, a fairly sizable case series. Um, so you are very well positioned to really make an impact on... Um, on these patients moving forward, so um, I think uh, I think certainly turning your own personal experience into into a, a set of expertise that would lead hopefully to, to better outcomes for other folks uh, really is uh, is an amazing opportunity that you have in your career. So, um, do you have any other main take home points for our clinician colleagues that you want to leave them about relapsing polychondritis, Marcy?
1: Yes, so I think that in Relapsing polychondritis is a systemic disease and it's not only involving the ear of the nose. And You don't need to see a cauliflower ear or a saddle nose to make a diagnosis. Actually, that's late. You should not see that if, if, because patients should be diagnosed earlier and you should not see have to see tracheomalacia to make the diagnosis. And um, relapsing polychondritis can affect the airway very frequently, more frequently than we think. And there is a subgroup of patients that tend to have Mainly airway involvement. So, having that in your differential as a pulmonologist, I think that is very important.
0: And so, so cough, dyspnea, a failure of response for typical treatments for asthma, and and pain, right. as we discussed, those are those are some of the some of the symptoms that should at least um, raise the possibility in in, in challenging patients. Yes.
1: Um,
0: is that is that a fair summary?
1: Yes, and I think that in in those cases the. Uh, the most important thing will be to go back and ask questions about other organs that could have been involved, because the organs can be involved at different time points.
0: Marcy, any last thoughts or comments?
1: I'm just very thankful that uh, you allow me to do this, and I think I hope that people will think about relapsing polychondritis when they see patients that do not fit the the, the typical clinical uh, presentation of asthma.
0: Well, actually, I think. Marcy, you're the one who, who deserves uh, thanks and, and admiration. And I really do uh, admire the courage you had to, to really share your personal story. Uh, it's not something that many of us are comfortable doing. Uh, but I think certainly your experience um, certainly has taught me about at least to have this on my differential diagnosis and think about it when I, when I see a challenging patient. Uh, and really, I think the way that this, your own illness has motivated you uh, to dedicate your career to studying these patients and to make a contribution. Um, um, I wish you the best of luck, um, both professionally uh, and, and personally. So thank you very, very much for joining uh, the podcast. And for our audience, I hope that you found today's discussion as really stimulating uh, as and as informative as I have. And until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS. Thank you all for joining in.